The following is a conversation with Doug Blegner. Doug Blegner is a physical psychoanalyst with the Brainerd Institute for Human Computer Modeling. He's an avid outdoor hunter, an explorer, a best-selling children's author, and a dad. Doug is also a close friend of mine and the co-host of Skeleton Realm Live, which is a live stream every Wednesday at 8 p.m. That is the show you're currently watching now. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Doug Blightner. Doug, so, ha so great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. It's fi finally came on the show. It's really exciting. I want to get right into it, okay? Yeah, of course, yeah. Some people say, when you make a mountain out of a molehill, it's a bad thing. But you have made mountains into hills. Yeah. We yeah. discussed that? Yeah, so you're talking about hilling, of course. Um, we just got back, actually, from the trip uh, in South America. We do hilling. It's called uh, hilling. It's um, sort of similar to mountaineering, hiking a large mountain, but it's a hill. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, hills... Um, you know, traversing a hill, getting to the top of a hill and making it to the top of the hill is actually not an easy task. And it's actually a lot more difficult than getting to the top of a mountain because there's a lot, it's, it's different. There's a lot of different obstacles you have to get through <laughs> to get to the top. So a lot of people don't actually realize that. And I think that's kind of funny. Um, but we just got back from South America and, you know, we had a lot of fun. We went down there with um, Joseph, uh, gosh, I forget his last name. <laughs> Sorry, Joseph. But we went down there with Joseph and... <laughs> As your friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a friend, you and I have spent yeah. many nights in log cabins together. Yeah, yeah. Many, many nights. Yeah. But it, but so you know, I don't know. It's funny. It's funny that you bring it up. Um, you know, first thing because it is something that's been on my mind. I guess we were talking about it, but hilling is it's it's a great activity. Yeah, I love to do it. Do you recall when you were a kid that you would bundle up your body and throw it down a hill and just roll down a hill? I was a roller as a kid, definitely. I used to roll down hills. Um, and I think that's something that probably sparked my interest in um, getting to know hills. You know, <clears throat> through my years in uh, university when I was studying um, geology and geography, something that I did come to understand was sort of the difference between a hill and a mountain. And, you know, hill. the, the interesting thing about hills, too, I think it connects to that childhood sort of whimsical playfulness in, in my mind is that hills can be man-made. They're structures that a man could make. Uh, you know, you look back into ancient times, you look back into prehistoric times and mounds typically were built and those are considered hills. And it's, it's actually quite rare that you would encounter a mountain made by uh, humankind or civilization, you, you mostly are encountering hills. And so uh, back in the medieval times in Europe, they would call it a mot, uh, but there's other terms for it. But um, as a kid rolling down the hill, having that personal, that human connection to the geographical structure, I think adds something to um, the experience of climbing it. And for me, that is all tied in to, to what a hill is. And so, yeah, I think those childhood memories really stimulated an early interest in hilling and um, so the same really can't be said for people who enjoy mountaineering or uh, rock climbing, for instance. Um, it's just not really quite the same. A, a hill has that sort of human element to it, and it is physically uh, taxing to get up a, a lot of different hills. So. You can't roll down a mountain. That's one of the big differences. Right. But besides not being able to throw yourself down a mountain like you can with a hill, what do you think is the real 
difference between a mountain and a hill? Yeah, so I, I get that question a lot, actually. I think that, you know, besides the geographical differences, I think what differentiates a hill from a mountain a lot of times, especially, I mean, if you ask sort of the average person, they would probably tell you that it's rounded. A hill is rounded in a mountain, you know, and that'd be like a silly answer. But it well, actually, I also hear, yeah. I also, a lot of people tell me that, and you would maybe know this, correct me if I'm wrong, but my the common knowledge is that every hill is man-made and only mountains are natural. Right. That is common knowledge and that actually, it's interesting, that is something that we have looked into when I was, that was what I did my um, thesis dissertation on was that question. And it's actually really difficult because we still actually don't know. We just don't know. It's, so, crazy. it's crazy. The things yeah. that we don't know the things sometimes. things we don't know. They it could makes probably, me laugh. I know. It makes me laugh. They could fill a book. I know. They could fill an entire novel probably, but but that question is, I mean, that if is If only something. we knew them to write them down in the book that we don't know. I know, exactly. But we don't know them, so we can't. And can. so those things keep me up at night for sure, yeah. Yeah. Like what is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. Well, do you, how do you get prepared to run up hills and kind of, when you're, when you're working on um, doing something like hilling? You know, I yeah. know that you're known for a lot more than this, but you and I yeah. are friends. So I kind of wanted to start with this new thing that you're doing, which is healing. Yeah. But let's get into it further. How do you get prepared physically yeah. for healing? Yeah. So I have a treadmill at home and what I do on, is on the treadmill, I go to the steepest setting and I walk it um, 10, 20 miles a day. And I'll do that for a couple of weeks before we're going to go on the excursion, the trip. First, I probably, what, what goes into the training a lot of times is, you know, it depends on the hill. So if we're going to a certain type of hill, I'll computer model the hill on my computer using 3d software. I'll use cinema 4d to, sh to create the hill. And then I'll, I'll be, I'll create a 3d avatar of myself and I'll be able to look at the scale of the hill to me and that'll give me a training regimen because I can look at how many steps it would be and I can look at the incline, the decline. And so I'll set my treadmill to be that exact incline and that distance. And then what I, typically what I'll do is I'll double or triple that distance up to the top of that hill. And I'll do that every day for a few weeks before we actually go on the excursion. And what it does is it develops my calf muscles and it develops all of my quads and my hamstrings. And it helps me get the strength and the stamina that I need to get up the hill when I finally do visit the hill. You mentioned computer modeling, and you know that gets my ears perked up. Yeah. yeah. So, you made a hill with a computer. Yes. Do you think that you could ever have an AI use the computer to make the hill? And where would that put you as a hiller? Right. So, I think there's a lot of interesting research going on um, right now at Stanford on this, actually. And um, it gets to more than just the question of the capability of the AI or of the computer that would do the modeling. It kind of gets more to the philosophical um, questions involved in what what is a hill? Because the question really, if you think about it at its base level, isn't whether or not an AI could create a hill. It's more, what do you tell the AI to do in order to spit out what you and I call a hill? And we know, we know from experience that it's very up for interpretation what a hill really is. So a lot of the research now is being done into that. Uh, you know, it's, it's compelling. It's interesting to see what an AI, how an AI makes sense of when you describe a hill to it. But to your question about, you know, what, where, where would I be? You know, where would I be if an AI was able to model a hill? Because um, you know, that is a fundamental aspect of one of my many jobs. And I think, you know, for me, I think 
the really beautiful thing about computer modeling and AI computer modeling is <clears throat> it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, if you if you create a system that's more efficient that can model more hills, let's say let's say right now <clears throat> we can model about ten thousand hills a day with the human power, the brain power that we have. If we could get an AI to help us model hills, we're looking more at ten thousand a second. So that's a big increase. So in my mind, yes, that does take away from some of the work that I do modeling hills. And yes, you know, I do make you know money. I have a financial incentive to not want an AI to perform that task. But I would argue that you know having ten thousand hills a second um, created by an AI would actually open up dozens of other types of jobs that actually you or I probably couldn't fathom right now and that's that's usually the story of technology is that technology you know you think that it's doing away with some of the human tasks and in a way it really does but what it does is it also paves the way for many new uh jobs and i think it's this you know we've seen it time and time again in all sorts of industries and i think hill modeling probably would be you know the same as as many other industries that we've seen well said and it's kind of like that we've made mountains out of molehills for so long trusting that the moles will keep making those hills yeah and now we are making the mole hills for the moles right. in that it's up to them to make mountains out of them yeah that's pretty it's pretty great yeah you know i was reading your blog recently and um you know you were talking about preparing for hilling mm -hmm. well you mentioned something called uh sporadic beasting and that's something i thought was really interesting yeah. especially in the context of what we're going to be talking about tonight right would you be comfortable talking about sporadic beasting right now yeah of course um yeah so just tell, maybe tell a little bit about what it is and and yeah, yeah specifically what can it do to the body yeah yeah that that is really the big question is what does it do to the body Cause yeah a lot of times i mean like, what know, doesn't it do to the body is, is almost the real question it is kind of funny it? yeah um, so sporadic beasting, you know, is a system that I devised where the body becomes extremely muscular. Um, you work really hard. You create a, a, an incredible physique. You go through a bulking phase and a cutting phase. You build the muscles. You train every day. You eat really clean. You cut away the fat. You become very cut and lean. And then what you do is you spend about six months after that. That's about a six-month period, first of all, to get extremely cut, ripped, and then you stop, you, you remain ripped for a day or two, and then you spend six months uh, becoming morbidly obese and becoming as unhealthy as you can and eating 10, 20, 30,000 calories a day, and you become morbidly obese, and that's about a six-month process to go from, you know, we're talking, I get down to 5% body fat, so I get competition ready, as they say in the bodybuilding industry, <clears throat> and I get really lean, and I, you know, I'm five foot nine, and I'm at 180 pounds at five percent so i get five percent five percent is low five percent is very low okay and so i'm i'm my testosterone levels actually decrease to elderly male man levels or that of a baby extremely low which is low which is very low that they, they have low testosterone so i get moody and i get um you know it messes with your body but what's great about it is at the next six months you become morbidly obese so I, again i'm five nine at the end of the 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 um um the you know the obesity uh phase is what we call it i'm 600 pounds so i go from 180 to 600. that's and, incredible yeah i've yeah. never heard of and such that's, uh they call them gains gains it's gains but it's gains in a certain type of way because you know most bodybuilders 
cycle, right? So, and I'm not talking about, you know, cycling steroids, although that, that is something else that I do use during the cutting cycle. But okay. most bodybuilders, what they do is, you know, in order to put on a good amount of muscle, yeah. you're gonna, you're gonna be putting on fat. There's no way around it really. So, um, you, you bulk, you know, and you get the muscle that you want, you increase your strength, you train, and then you, what you do is you cut and you're, and when you cut, when you're losing weight, you're going to lose a little bit of muscle too. So it's a constant game of yo-yo back and forth until you achieve that physique of those large muscles with minimal fat. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about getting as muscular as possible, as lean as possible, using steroids, using whatever I can, and then going that six month distance and getting to that 600 pounds. And that's that's what sporadic beasting is called. We call it sporadic beasting because I consider myself a beast. When I'm cut, I, you know, I'm benching 600 pounds, which is my weight at, um, at full obesity level. Um, and, and that, and I'm a beast, I'm a beast, but it's only sporadic. So that's why we call it sporadic beasting. And, and yeah, so that's basically what it is. You must relate to people on a different level when you're changing through these body types. Exactly. You're changing shape. You're almost a shapeshifter. I don't know if you've ever read The X-Man. No, I haven't. I'm not familiar. It's a squad of shapeshifters, and they become whoever they want. Yeah. And it's really cool. But that's kind of what you're doing. However, when you change shape like that, yeah. do you think that there is an application where artificial intelligence could potentially learn from this dynamic behavior yeah. that you've been I think setting an example for. I think that's a fantastic question. I think, you know, honestly, it's one of the good utilities of this system is that we can use this to teach AI. And, you know, when I do this... In a good way. In a good way, to teach it to love and to be good. Because when I do good. this... Yeah. When that I makes do this, me happy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So when I do this... You know, one of the reasons I do this is there's a social element. There's a physical element to it because it keeps me healthy, but <laughs> the social element is that when I do this, I get different reactions. Like when I'm really cut and I'm really buff, <laughs> I get certain reactions from people. Beauty and, is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. And so when I'm really obese, I get a certain reaction too. <laughs> so I, I cycle kind of through reaction? these reactions. Well, they're just different and it depends on the person. But the point is... It teaches me how to interact with people because I've traditionally been not very good at interacting socially. I, you know, I suffer with some social kind of disabilities, you, you could say. And so this has taught me how to interact. People treat you a certain way when you're buff and they treat you a certain way when you're... You've walked a mile in a thousand shoes. Yes. Yes, with a thousand, yeah. Different yeah. size shoes too. Sure, I guess you could say that, yeah. You yeah. never know someone until you wear the <coughs> shirt, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. How do you how do you come up with some of these ideas? It, it requires this kind of uh, malleable thinking, this kind of like rubber brain. How do you actually get into the mindset to start thinking of things like healing, sporadic beasting, changing your own shape to yeah. come into society in a different form? Yeah. So basically. You know, it's a kind of a complex question. I think it deserves a little bit of a complex answer. So it is, it is, it is this. It is the case that we do sit down and we do brainstorming sessions two or three times a week, and we do that with Skeleton Realm, uh, SkeletonRealm.org, which is a global think tank that I do run with you. And so we do. I do sit down and I do brainstorm and I draw on the whiteboard and I, you know, I, I try to think in sort of novel ways. And that's, um, you know, that's basically it. I think. 
I think in terms of this sort of ideas that I've had, they're not ideas that um, you know most regular average folks couldn't come up with. They're just they're just ideas that anybody could come up with if they think a certain way. That, that's interesting. Um, you you have written about a specific method of coming up with ideas, right? Are you and yeah. more or less contextualizing ideas. Maybe this isn't fabrication of the idea maybe this is more the initial romance of an idea right. what really springs it into so you, and I, I think you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah are you talking about cube framing yeah i am yeah so cube framing is a certain system of thought that i've come up with recently it's helped me through a lot of different problems and um it kind of you know it's funny now a lot of people ask me about it a lot of people have been using this system a lot of people have been benefiting from this system since i've publicly talked about it in my lecture series but when I first came up with it, it was really just a personal thing that I was doing just naturally. I was just doing this naturally because it was a shortcut that I had found in my mind. And I've been doing it since I was a kid, really. Before you go into this, yeah. this is a question I've been dying to know. Yeah. What was the first day that you did cube frame? Yeah. And what was it like? Yeah. You said it was when you were a kid. Yeah. And I've always wanted to know this. I mean, we, I know the tenets of it, and we'll explain it to the listener, what the tenets of cube framing Right, are, right. What was it like for you on the first day yeah, that I, you discovered it? You know, it's tough because I, you know, like a first day doesn't really come to mind, but I do remember, um, I do remember being at the beach uh, with my family, playing in the sand, and I, you know, I do remember put, putting together some sort of sand cube, and I do remember it kind of fitting like a, a puzzle piece in my head, kind of like lit up. Like if you imagine, you know how, you know, it's, it's funny to say, but you imagine, um, a light bulb at the top of a cartoon character's head that kind of turns on, you know. Absolutely. We, we like to have fun with that kind of stuff. The symbol of an idea. Yeah, exactly. That's so, why we like lights. That's why we, we love lights. And so for me, it was a puzzle piece floating above my head and a cube. And they both lit up. And I saw that in my mind's eye. I must have been probably six or seven. And I was playing in the sand, looking at the sand. And that's when it really clicked for me and, you know, and then from then on, I, I just kept doing it. And again, it wasn't something that I verbalized or vocalized. And it wasn't something that I even really thought much about. It's almost a subconscious thing. You know, we have a lot of thoughts during the day that we just, we pass over that we don't actually really articulate. And it was like that for me for years until, until, like I said, I started my lecture series and I, you know, started um, talking about it because I kind of realized that I was doing it because of the lecture series. So, if break down, you, you, you set out three tenants, right? There's three tenants to cube framing. Yeah. What, can you, for the listener in a real layman's term, you know, we don't need to do the full course, because I know you teach a course yeah. on webinar.net yeah. about this, and they, our viewers, I will do the promo code uh, at the beginning of the show. However, lay it out for the viewers. So. Yeah, so basically all it is is if you have a problem, and this works really well with engineering problems, and mm. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, probably a neuroscientist could to, could explain that better. But basically what it is is when you have an, a, a problem that you just, you've hit a brick wall, take the problem in your head. It helps to close your eyes sometimes. So you close your eyes and take the problem in your head and think of that problem. Think about the problem. Visualize it. Cube. So I can't see the problem anymore for me. Um, and so that all I see is a pink cube. And the problem is inside it. The problem's gone. I can't see it. But I know that that problem is in that cube. And then I think, I sit and I wait. 
And then that cube, what it does is slowly dissolves away. And you can see the problem very clearly. And then the problem starts to unwind like a puzzle. And then there you have it. And I have been doing that, like I said, I've been doing this for years. One of the, one of the big things that I use this method for that was, you know, one of my better known you know, achievements was when we had the breakthrough with microprocessors. And mm-hmm. the issue there was, you know, in a nutshell, without getting too into it, um, microprocessors reached a point in the past decades where, you know, we're, we're increasing the amount of speed, the speed by which microprocessors can perform. We're increasing what they can really do, the capabilities at an exponential rate. And, you know, as microprocessors get exponentially better at what they do, technology necessarily increases at an exponential rate, too. Mm -hmm. And so over the decades, we have this exponential curve where we're increasing the processing power of microprocessors. Mm -hmm. And so we're reaching a point where physically we cannot design, you know, we can't use the constituent elements that make up a microprocessor, silicon and other other elements that we create these these chips with. We can't produce... Uh, we can't produce them to be exponentially faster in the same uh, 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 you know curvature that we have. So all I did was I took that microprocessor, that problem, and I put it in a cube and I closed my eyes, and then the solution was really clear. And everyone already knows you don't need to get into the. Oh solution. yeah, that was when you fin- you left Bing Bong Games. That That's was the right. first time you went from what people considered kid games. Right. People thought computers. In the 1980s, people thought computers were for children, mm-hmm. and they thought they were only used for ball and paddle games. Right. But little did we know that soon computers would actually become used for counting, right. for adding and subtracting and that kind of thing. And people just didn't appreciate that. You helped bring that to the table. Yeah, and I appreciate the, that recognition, that categorization of what I did. But you know, I think that really that goes out to Jim Jorgensen, who was really yeah. a big name in that. Well, and you know, and he's on not the shoulders with, of giants. You know, I know, but he kind of he was an old school guy, and you're kind of part of the new school. Yeah, you know. Well, we could say that. Yeah. Well, I do have a question about cube framing, though. Yeah. First off, how many people do you think are doing it? Oh, that's an, that's a good question. Um, well. Let's see. We had 10 million come to the lectures last year. Uh, and so I would say maybe 1% of them probably do it on a daily basis. So we could say a million. Wow. I think there's probably a million people worldwide. And that's that's in every country you know, combined. So in America, we could probably say 900,000, maybe something like that. Which is large. That's a lot of people keep running. And I think... You know, it's funny. Some of the contributions that we make in our life, I think sometimes they're... They're not, they don't occur in the way that we thought they would. I think sometimes we have an idea of what we'd like to well give said, to the yeah. world. You know, what, what, what is it that we'd like to contribute to the world? And, and for me, I don't, I didn't, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, what do you think the biggest contribution to, you know, the world would be in 2022? What would have been back then? I probably would have said something about, <laughs> I probably would have said something about the um, furniture design. Exactly. That, yeah. You were you were thinking about chairs back then, yeah. And now you're thinking about cubes, yeah. So, but but, you know, I, I've learned to, you know, love love what life throws at you because I think you know being being able to be open to you know maybe I'm not a famous furniture designer, or maybe I'm a cube framer, and so cube framing is, yeah. is what I've given to to the world, and and it just makes me happy and makes me giggle and laugh to think about. Um, it's helped a yeah. lot of people. It has. I think so. I have another question yeah. about cube framing, though, before we move on. Uh-huh. 
and that has to do with the implications of cube framing and how useful it is to people but have you considered that artificial intelligence could eventually learn cube framing and what do you think that might mean for our society if artificial intelligence does eventually learn about cube framing you know honestly that's a really good question and there's a lot of research going into that right now and actually jim jorgensen uh was spearheading a lot of that until he died a few years ago uh but it's tough to say i mean i think that something like cube framing to me it's a tool that a human being would use to sort of shortcut you know these human constraints that we have you know we we can't we can't compete at an ai level we can't compete at a computer level and no, so it's no it's, and, yeah. and it actually it would be a, a joke to even try yeah. so so imagine it, yeah i mean my friend always tells me he tells me this all the time he says when you think about a computer and a person competing think about a horse yeah. on a field and then think about a track star your favorite track star like what's yours yeah um i don't i don't know i don't yeah i'm sorry i don't i can't name any okay hassan bolt yeah exactly think of hassan bolt and he's running around but think of next to him is a horse and he's running in a straight line because actually track runs in a circle yeah so think of a horse running in a a straight line and then the the other way it's it's in a circle so yeah and he always tells me that all the time and he's going it's not worth it and um and and so it, I think that we're ready for a, a new revolution in yeah. this kind of thing, especially with regards to the computer competition. Do you think we need to put a a, a clamp on it, a, a damper, a, a, an inhibitor? Well, so I will go back to that what I was saying before, which is that you know cube framing I think is something that human beings need because we can't perform at a computer level. What I would say is an AI that could sufficiently. Um, you know, could 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 think through processes at you know we're talking exponential levels above what the human mind could do. Would not need something like com- cube framing to complete any sort of task that was set before it. So I don't think that cube framing would be in the AI's arsenal. Um, that's a human tool. That's like saying you know, um, that's like saying would a dump truck need a shovel? Yeah. You know? And that answer is no. Because yeah. a dump truck would just dump it out without a shovel, but a human would need a shovel. It's like saying, do you think a dump truck's going to utilize a human shovel to get the dump to get the dump out? And another thing about cube framing, maybe, and because yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And another thing about cube framing is kind of you know how it is human and how maybe AI can't access uh, the cube framing because it is a passionate thing. Yeah, it is passionate. It is about love, and I love yeah. love. It's kind it's of hard redundant to, quantify- to say. I don't like to say that twice yeah. in a row, but it's it is true. I mean, how could uh, have you had, any, had have you ever had any experiences? I don't want to get crude, but have you ever had any experiences with you know uh, going cube framing sexuality, yeah. that kind of thing, love so, making or something? It, it is awkward to kind of talk about. Um, um, but yes, I have had experiences with AI. Um, oh, man. I knew I was. I knew this was going to come up, and so I was kind of ready for it. Oh yeah, no, you. And we this are, is one we, we left off friends. the table, We're but friends. I thought you know we're it's... friends and we know each other, and so yes. Um, so there is something called SJO, and it is something that they've been working on at MIT. Um, and 
it's a new system by which you know and i i will say i had a lot of experiences with this software because i was beta tested uh with the software because i signed up very early and i have friends you know we have friends at mit that's exciting you're, you're at mit so yeah. we're connected with mit I, I yeah i was yeah. on vacation during that and i didn't yeah, get to they, opt in so i want to hear i'm all ears so they hooked me up and they said can we beta test this new sjo on you and i said well what's that they said well it's an ai system and what it does is it, it helps you get sort of some, something off your chest so to speak helps you get something out okay and i yeah. kept i got the sense that they kept beating around the bush mm -hmm. and i kept going okay what's sjo what's sjo so i finally said what is sjo and they said sexually jacking off oh yeah, yeah. so that be then it became very clear so what it was is an ai system that gets into your mind that's it's it's a separate mind it's sort of like a if you see star trek we like i like to i like to talk about star trek because don't star get trek, me started yeah, on star trek star i could probably talk like, about that for the rest of the show yeah, but let's so let's I'll, but in star trek that the vulcan mind meld which is where the vulcans mold their meld their minds together uh spock style spock does the spock, they call it a spock meld actually at mit <laughs> but yeah hey who so doesn't know that I know, yeah i know like, we're getting a bit of a nerd out it's funny we're to think about out, being yeah. nerdy because we're yeah. nerds but um but so anyway the ai what it does is it molds into your mind and it becomes one with you and then forces <laughs> It forces an orgasm out of you. <clears throat> and I, to me, I know that it kind of seems like that's vulgar and that's crude, but that's, it's not, you know. We laugh. We, we like to we laugh. laugh. We it, like but... to laugh. It's kind of silly. <laughs> it, it, it gets silly, but it's serious. And, you know, when I first started doing it, I thought, you know, what is the point of this? What is the utility? These guys at MIT, they're doing something kind of nasty and I love being a part of it, but it's kind of odd. And then I started to realize some of the research, uh, that, uh, Mike Johansson was doing there and so I was talking to Mike I was in his office and I was talking to him like what are we doing with all this data you know he's got like he's got like pages and pages of data about my you know my emissions what and kind he's of, got what kind of data to that consistency weight holy cow <laughs> taste of your um it's silly we laughed about output it. output yeah, yeah. The com computational output my um your jacket DNA has a lot of the human body is almost like a computer it's a, it's, in itself life is like a machine life is like a video game it is and so anyway i thought what's the point of all this data what are you doing with all this and he said this is going to solve the population crisis and at first i went okay okay i think you're incorrect because you know a lot of people have been talking about overpopulation for a while actually the issue is underpopulation you know right. we're not reproducing at the level that we actually need to be reproducing at and so there's kind of been you know there's a lot of literature in, from the 1980s that's sort of been debunked on that and I, so i said okay so you're going to use this ai to have people you know masturbate let's be honest we can use that i've word. learned to be honest with myself about what i've been doing i think that's but, okay so people are going to use that and then they're going to have less children and that'll help the population thing and, so, and I, you know and he said no it's actually an inverse an inverse relationship so we talk about these in science a lot and the work that i've done is it's called the inverse confusion relationship mm -hmm. the icr yeah and so what that is is where the total opposite of what is going to happen happens so what happens is more people are plugged into this ai system and more people are masturbating every single day not finding partners sexually not you know getting married having kids not even dating not even you know going out leaving their home they're just falling in love with an ai that's inside their mind and that actually from all the modeling that we've done and all the computer modeling that they've done at mit at this in the laboratory shows that the population crisis would be solved by that meaning the population will increase so we will get 
you know, orders of magnitude more people in the, and they, they did it out to the year 3000 actually. So wow. they did almost a thousand years and they found that after a thousand years of this AI system, the population was at a nice, healthy 10 trillion, uh, oh, excuse me, not 10 trillion, 10 trillion trillion. So, oh, okay. right. Because we're at, you know, so sure. I thought that was very interesting. And, and to me, um, that's incredible to me. I was so happy because, you know, originally I actually didn't really want to you know, put my name on this. You know, I was going in at night and I was right. doing this. But it I, kind of turned out to be a happy end. It was a happy ending. We can yeah. Say. yeah, exactly. That's yeah. good. So it was really fun. I had a lot of fun there. That is thrilling. And it all relates to love and technology and the mix between them. You know, the, uh, the, the total coalescing of, of, of love, machines and technology. That's yeah. the stuff that I just love so much. Right. Reading your blog, though, I did re recall that um, while you were on this project where you were experiencing, you know, kind of masturbation trials, hyper condensed, super dense uh, masturbation sessions mm -hmm. with the AI, you actually made an effort. You went out and you <laughs> made an effort to kind of nip it in the, the bud. Right. Yeah. So how'd you do that? Well, for me, it became too much. It was a little too much. And I, that's okay. You know, I think I take responsibility for what I did in that program and, you know, what it did to my lifestyle, what it did to my brain, because that's what I signed up for. And, and I, you know, I love being a guinea pig for science. That's what I live for. I love being hooked up to stuff and tested on. That's really what I'd love to do. Oh, yeah. Four seven. You're the, the, the GP. You, we used to call you. The GP of MIT. That's what he used to call me. Yeah. Exactly. And so I love yeah. doing that. So I don't, I don't, I'm not griping and moaning, but it did, it did, you know, the constant, the constant ejaculations, the constant masturbation did something to me where when I was unplugged from the the ai i had to get my fill and so i was doing mm -hmm. you know porn 10 20 sure. 30 40 yeah. times a day and i was you know looking at porn ejaculating into napkins and stuff like that so i had to do something and i thought about an experience uh, that a friend of mine had uh in china uh in tibet at rather um because we do make that distinction Absolutely, uh, we yeah. Do, yeah. And, we need to free it big time. Right. And so my a friend of mine went, had gone to Tibet, and he was a heavy smoker. Mm -hmm. And so he had met a, a man in Tibet named uh, Shen Wan Steel. And Shen Wan Steel is actually the cousin of the Dalai Lama. And, no kidding. And he lives, right. Yeah, it's, Did it's, he know that? He didn't know it at the time, but he, wow. Shen Wan lives uh, about a mile from, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, the Dalai Lama castle. So he lives about a mile at the foot of the mountain. And... He does services. Uh, it's like three Shen Chinese, one Spanish, steel English. Yeah, so he's an interesting guy. He's, he, um, you know, I actually didn't get a good look at his face. I couldn't tell what he looked like or sounded like because I uh -huh. didn't actually really ever see him. But you basically, he does things for you. He hypnotizes you. Oh. So he has a program there actually called the Hypno Jack Lock. Okay. Uh, where he'll hypnotize you to stop masturbating so much, and he does it for smokers and masturbators, and that's it. So I, so my friend, you know, went, um, and I, you know, I do, you know, we like to talk smack on on mountaineers. We like to kind of sure. get dirty. And yeah, I know. Talk smack on them because they can climb 
as many mountains as they right. want. And I am a hiller. Never cross that and hill. And I'll die on that hill. Exactly. I'll die on the hill of being a hiller. Exactly. But, they, but you don't see them dying on mountains. Right. No, no. that's never heard of that. No. So what I wanted to do is go to Tibet and check out Mount Everest too, right. uh, it, on the Himalayas, cross over, go up into Tibet. Wow. So it was a big full excursion for me. And while I was there, I went, oh yeah, we can, we can see Shenwan. So because I have this problem, because at that time I was just going and going and going and going until I couldn't go anywhere. So I was dry, firing dry. Wow. Like 20, 20, 20 to fifty a day, oh, and I count loads. my day twelve hours. So if oh. we count a twenty-four hour overnight, I was having nocturnal emissions in my dreams. So Those we're are having half another days. fifty. So we're a hundred a day. Holy cow! That's a lot of volume. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you had to anyway. seek help. I mean, yeah. So so when he talked to Shenwan, he hypnotized me. He put me under. Yeah. And I woke up on the other side of the mountain ridge. So right. there's this big, big. When you get there and you get to his house, you see you can see the mountains. The Himalayas. Uh, it's not the Himalayas. It's on the other side. Other direction. They're up into Tibet. Right. Okay. Right. So it's not the, you know, it's, it's not, not the Indian it, it is. border. It is. Or, and, it, and it's not. Tibet's, it's, it's an yeah. otherworldly kind of place. And when you're there, you really do feel that way. You kind of like it is here and it is not. So you really don't have a sense of where you are. But so what he did was he, he put me to sleep. And when I woke up, I was on the other side of this big ridge. Really? And I actually started to get worried because I was like, okay, did I cross a border? Because, you know, a lot of times the borders are going through. We're very close to the Chinese border. Right. We were close to some other borders. And um, when I crossed over, when I woke up, I thought, oh, where am I? I didn't have my passport. I was naked. I didn't have anything. Oh, so I wow. had to hike back five miles. Nude. Up, nude. Up up a really difficult terrain. And when I got back to Shenwan's, all my stuff was neatly folded. And I was a little bit perturbed. But when I talked to my friend who had done the non the, the smoking hip, hip, hypnotization, he explained to me the same thing happened to him, and what he came to find was that journey, yeah. that journey afterwards, yeah. that journey that he took to get back, to get his passport and all that, that was really where his mind cleansed itself and rid itself of the addiction. And so for me, that I, when I looked back on it, I realized that was the, what it was. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily the, hip, the, um, you know, the being hypnotized part, it was the afterwards part of doing that journey and coming back and finding my clothes neatly folded up in Shinwan's couch yeah and that makes so much sense to me because as long as i've known you you've always said that you know if you see someone nude on the street they're wandering they, they're naked pick them up bring yeah. them in your car they can ride shotgun it doesn't matter if they're naked because yeah. this is a fellow traveler yeah. who might be going through something but now that makes so much sense and i can't believe you and i've known each other for so long but i've never heard that story and now it's making so much sense yeah. that you know this your propensity to pick up nude people on the side of the street which recently you recall the lunch just two weeks ago there was right. you, you roll up in a van just full of nude strangers yeah. and you said they, these people need help they need help getting and, to their destination. And for me, if I don't make the conscious effort to do that, yeah. pick up those people, I will go back to masturbating 100 times a day. Wow. That's so incredible. It's required for me. It's part of the healing process for me. So that's tough. Yeah. That's incredible. So we like to have fun. Absolutely. I suppose we can, we, can, we can lighten it up next. You know, we've been talking about a lot of heady subjects. So... I guess the next question I have for you is, what are your thoughts on social media? Do you practice social media? Are you, are you, are you engaging in it, or do you do anything with it, or do yeah. you post? Do so, you delete or anything? We do a little bit of what's called trolling on Twitter.com. 
We do a little what's, bit of trolling. Go on, explain that. So what's really fun is tr something called trolling. And that's where you take kind of poke fun um, at people who are sort of holier than thou, serious type of people. We know we like to call them the elites, and they think they're very fun and very, uh, you know, or they don't think they're very fun. They're very serious, and um, they have a lot of very serious things to say. And I think, you know, to me, uh, one of the great joys of my life is just having fun with those types of people and just trolling. And so sometimes, you know, somebody will post something serious on Twitter. And I'll just go ahead and post like a like an emoji or like a middle finger because I'm kind of vulgar too. I I can be a little vulgar on so you Twitter. You take it there, don't you? I do a little bit of trolling. So, and one of the interesting things to me about trolling, I actually, you know, trolling. A lot of people think that trolling is is uh, is something new, but really, it's a lot like the medieval jester. The jester was the original troller. Wow! And every community in the medieval times had a jester. And, and every a designated jester and that was a role that they assigned and so you can see how far we've come because now we crucify the jester we kill the jester and so i love to play that jester role because they can't get me because what it's do you Twitter. think about com. the role the way with which we assign um the jester role is not the same as it used to be right yeah so today who knows it's up to that's what i want to ask you about back then it was the king it was the prince it was right. the duke it was the earl it was the count those guys would pick their jesters or their trolls and then even stranger they would write about trolls right that would often live in strange uh, dark dampened places so how do those things overlap yeah, I think it's interesting now you talk about picking the jester and kind of assigning the jester. And, and I think our culture has reached a point where the jester, you know, you can't kill the jester. The no. jester will always be there. Absolutely so not. We've reached a point in our culture where we've tried to kill the jester so long that we've almost eliminated the jester. And for a while, the jester has not been around and the trollers have not been around. But now what's happened with the Internet and with Twitter.com is that I'm able to be the jester. Wow. Yeah. So I get on there and I jest, and 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 that's an organic process. It's you know human beings organize in a way such that a jester is needed. Sort of, um, um, sort of. So, well, one of the interesting things that I noticed is that you know when I started getting into doing trolling and stuff, I I I noticed that there was this legacy, this this medieval legacy, but really what I started doing research on is there's a there's a cult of people online who worship a chaos demon named Shamal. And I realized that really the the chaos demon Shamal is the perfect embodiment of the jester. Yeah. And he's the perfect embodiment of the Twitter.com troll. And so the in, the Ingeni Mountain cave dwelling people are a group that I visited in one of my treks. And wow. they were the originators of Shamal. So it actually, everything fit together with me. And I realized when I went and visited the Ingeni Mountain people, they instilled the spirit of Jamal, Shamal in me. And I realized that that was where my trolling came from. And so trolling is the embodiment of an ancient chaos demon. And so that is, that's something that I, I quickly learned and I can never forget. That is so fascinating because today in these, these days, we kind of associate trolling with hate. Right. But what you not, found yeah. is that it's, it's, it's a bit more than that, isn't it? Well, this might be where you and I differ. Okay. You know, we can. I, so As like friends, to, yeah. we can differ. Isn't so that I, true? So I had like to ask people a question, and it kind of categorizes them for me. Okay. So I'll ask you the question. Please. Do you hate everyone? Um, no. 
Yeah, see, I would say yes. Okay. So we're different in that way. And there's two types. There's people who hate everyone and people who don't. That's interesting. And so I hate everyone. And so, but I'm having fun. I have a lot. Of, I hate everyone, but I'm having fun. Ah, see, because so I'm troll. I'm a troll. See, I love troll. everyone, but I'm I'm not having. We'll get fun. you. We'll get you trolling. Okay. We'll get you a trolling account. You think I could troll? I think you could kind of show you how to troll. Yeah. So what do you use to troll? What do I use? Well, I use a computer to troll. I use my laptop, my desktop, and. You know what? What with such a capacity for driving emotion, for making people crazy, for making people love, for making people upset, you know, for getting people some of their their careers canceled, you know, like that yeah, kind of thing. Right. What do we do with a computer? What is a computer? Yeah, so that actually is one of the bigger questions of my career is basically what is a computer? And it seems quite obvious to people who study this subject, maybe. Like if you study computer science at university or you study computer engineering or something like that, you might think that you have a good grasp on what a computer is. But really, fundamentally, we have not actually defined what a computer is. And so one of the work, one of the big things I did when I did my thesis at, at Yale, uh, when I was doing humanities stuff, was sort of the semantics around computer, but not necessarily, you know, it wasn't like a, ling a, a linguistic uh, search for the meaning of the word computer. It was really, what is computer? We don't know what computer is. No one knows what computer is. And so I started to pick away at computer. Yeah. What is computer? What is computer? And I would look at a person's computer at their house. I'd say, is that a laptop computer? So you actually went to people's houses I went and door looked to door. at their computers. I went door to door all around the Yale campus. Wow. And to the, all the dorms and everything. And I talked to everybody, all the professors and all the grad students. And I said, what's a computer? And they said, that's my laptop computer. That's my desktop computer. I'd say. But they, mm. they and that's the funny thing about it yeah. is that they could bring you all the way into their house, into their dining room, into their study, their home office. But when they, when they try to answer you, all they can say is, here's my computer. They can never tell you what it is. Right. So, yeah, they, don't, they couldn't actually answer the question. They, they would actually just show me. So what I've learned is like, it's like when you ask a child a question and they show you their toy, they're not really answering questions. It's like I asked I ask my son like <clears throat> an advanced calculus question and he shows me his toy. And I say, you didn't answer the question. So it's a similar type thing where I say, what is a computer? What is a computer? And they just show me a laptop computer. And what I learned is that when you strip away you know, what a computer is to its constituent parts, you're faced with, you're, you're forced to be faced with for, uh, the principles of the matter. So we talk about the ground, we we'll call them the ground level principles, that we call them the primary principles. Right. And so what we do is we go to the primary principles and we build from there. Yeah. So what a computer is, is actually, it's actually made up of a constituent amount, mm. a list of primary mm. principles. And so if we go back to primary principles, we will understand what a computer is eventually, and that will actually allow us to be able to construct better computers, whatever that is, and, you know, things like that. So it, it, it's kind of funny to laugh at to, to say, you know, <laughs> what is a computer? But it actually is not known. We don't know what a computer is, and that's because we're not respecting the primary principles. I think it is a good question. What is a computer? Maybe we won't know now. I think, I hope that we will know it in the future. Speak, I think we will. Speaking of computers, Hopefully. you know, I grew up in Stalingrad, and uh, there's a lot of chess, uh, chess going on there. You understand? Absolutely. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. I do this basically with everyone. I ask them kindly, 
you know, with love, would you like to engage in a game of chess with me? A game of chess right now. Absolutely. Let's do it. I'm, 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 yeah, let's do a game of chess. Sounds like fun. It would be an honor. I think play. it is the game of kings. It is their preferred game. And therefore, we might even have something to learn about it. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's play. All right. I have the, the chess board right here. Okay. And there it is. So do you want, do you want red or black? Um, I guess I'll take red. Okay, you can have red. And so, um, given you're my guest, why don't you go first? Okay. There you go. Chess. That's the... It's the Miguel opening. Absolutely. And, you know, Miguel, that was in 1963. Yeah. In Porrist. And he surprised basically everyone with that opening. But now it's in the books. Well, it's too bad I knew it, huh? Exactly. Because I've got something up my sleeve. I know you do. And so I think this game is such a good way to start conversations. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, so... When I was a kid, I used to play chess with my father uh, every day. He would force me to play 50 or 60 games a day. Really? And I, I was, uh, you know, I was very skilled. Actually, when I was young, I, I got to be very, very, very skilled at chess and won several national and international tournaments as a child. So It shows, you know, I'm a bit intimidated. I don't have a lot of time to spend on these, but... Right. Your wow, strategy okay. is showing. So you're not too bad. You're 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 th you've thwarted my first attack. That's very. It is fun. Good. It's rare that I I'm actually up against someone who can thwart that one that quit that well. So you're 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 keeping a keen eye. You're very good. You're very skilled. Thank you. It means a lot. Your turn. Wow. Okay. So that's an interesting move. I don't usually see. I don't usually see the the knight to that to the, go. Go ahead. Your turn. Okay. Think carefully about what you want to do here. <laughs> I'll try that one. Okay, so here we go with that. See what you can do with that. So we're getting close to check, I think. Uh-oh. Okay, let's do it. That's, have you... Actually, that's probably the best thing you could have done there. So oh, wow. Job, yeah. Thank you. Okay, let's... Um... There you go. Okay. Well, sorry. I, are you? You're not taking easy on that move, please. Okay. I I beg you. I think you, it's almost done. Do not. It's almost over for you. Okay. Let's try this. <clears throat> sorry, and but I have to follow it, it up with that. So there it is. Checkmate. Absolutely. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, and that Congrats was a good game. That. Yeah. We won. That was really good. Yeah. It's really fun when you can complete that with a friend. It's kind of like when you invite a new person into your house, when you invite a new person into your life, you kind of get a whirlwind, a tidal wave, or a cold breeze bursting through the window, and you kind of think to yourself, 
we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. Have you ever had that thought? Yeah. And so I know what you're getting at with that. Um, I have had that thought and that is the inspiration behind what I like to call the, we're not in Kansas anymore system. Oh. Um, and yeah. so what that is, is that's something that I invented. Um, it's kind of similar to the <clears throat> cube framing system. Um, Your systemic type guy. And, and what it is, is it's basically, it's a system of analysis. It's not a system to solve problems. It's more of a system to analyze a problem. Right. And so what I do with the, the, we're not in Kansas anymore system. And this is another thing. It's kind of like the cube framing that I came up with, which is something that I've just do, have been doing naturally since I was a kid. This is one of those. So I okay, actually just have been doing this naturally since I was a kid as well, because Wizard of Oz, when I was a kid, was my favorite movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just would spend hours watching it over and over. And I would, I would actually watch it with the sound off because the sound was very terrifying to me. So I'd watch it silently, but I watched it over and over and over. And I got to know the characters in my own way. So I created my own version of the characters in my head because I didn't have the sound. They are delightful, aren't they? They're really delightful characters. Scarecrow. Yeah. So... The system of analysis basically is this: if I have an if I have a problem, if it's let's say it's an engineering problem, let's say maybe it's a, a you know um, um, a philosophical question that I, I you know I'm just it's a, I'm trying to analyze and better understand. Now, I'm not trying to solve; I'm just trying to better frame and understand. Would you it. say? <coughs> would you say that this process has even helped you get through cube framing? I would say that this it you can add this into cube framing and sort of it's like a double whammy when you put these two together you can really start cooking you can really start solving problems so lay it out but this is yeah so basically what this is is you have a a, a question a philosophical question or problem you take each character from the wizard of oz you take dorothy you take scarecrow you take lion man and you take tin man and tin man. you you think of the problem from their perspective so you think yeah. about what they would say. So if I have a conversation with Dorothy about the problem in my head for maybe five, let's say five, 10 minutes, right. and you move on, you go to 10 man and you have that conversation. And by the time, and it works every time, by the time you get through each person, you understand the problem, you understand it. And if you don't, I think you should probably either restart the, the thought experiment or move on from the problem because probably you don't you're not equipped mentally to be able to understand that particular problem and that's okay too but this is a way to sort of test to see if you can understand and analyze the problem and again this is not to solve a problem this is to analyze it so there's a lot that goes into that uh you know and it's sometimes teasing out that that difference is difficult that's it's it's a tough it's a tough pro thing to tease out but i'm not trying to solve the problem I'm trying to analyze the problem and that's what the wizard of oz system is through dorothy through the dog yes through the straw man i don't use the dog no dog no dog that's an interesting thought we could add the dog in I didn't what do you think it. are the shortcomings of the dog whose name has been synonymous with total decimation of tornadoes, given its name is Toto. Total yeah. decimation of tornadoes. Toto, yes. Um, what do I think the shortcomings of the dog are? Well, in terms of including it in your system, why have you omitted oh, right. Toto? Total well, decimation of tornadoes. Well, I think this really teases out what it what you know what it means to be conscious, what it means to be human. Yeah. And so, and that actually is a really good question because it's like, you know, is is if I frame a problem that I'm, if I frame a problem through this analysis 
from the eyes of a different species entirely, will I get a perspective that will allow me to work through it better? Yeah. And that's a really good question. I hadn't thought about that. So I really appreciate you bringing that up because if we, if we think about the problem from a dog's perspective mm-hmm. or a horse's perspective, absolutely, or a cat's perspective, let's go smaller. Maybe, maybe a rat's perspective. That's good. Maybe a, maybe a mouse, a mouse, how many thoughts can fit in the brain of a mouse? We don't know, but their DNA has been shown to even be similar to a human's. Right. And therefore contain the thoughts and the proteins that we do. So that might actually be a really good way to tackle an issue. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really good question about Toto. I really appreciate that. Well, I'll let you think on that. But in the meantime, how do you... uh, continue to make these kinds of um you know let me put it like this on this show you and i host it every week 8 p.m on wednesdays you and i have a lot of fun yeah we have to make a lot of decisions right and that part is kind of considered by many the hardest part of living and being a human being you know, right, and that's why you know artificial intelligence is so important in that regard because it makes the decisions, and therefore yeah. we can do it without having to do it. Right, but you disagree. Well, you know, I I think this goes back to what we were talking about uh, before um, with cube framing and what it would be like if a an AI was to utilize the system of cube framing. And, you know, my answer to that is sort of similar to my answer here or my my pushback here, which would be that, you know, an AI is so, you know, theoretically, like if what we like to call an AI, like we're thinking, you know, exponential powers greater than the human mind. You know, if we're thinking about systems like that, basically we're thinking about systems that don't need these shortcuts. These are shortcuts. These are tools that a human being would come up with to help themselves. So an AI would eliminate the need of these tools. So I think it's an, I think it's. It's interesting. I I think I think your question is misguided somewhat. I think okay. I think what you're saying is what you're asking is mm-hmm. what happens when an AI has access to these systems. And I guess I'm speaking more of your framing of cube framing. But for this, for this, I will say. Of course, we're assuming this AI is yeah. not Willy Wonka. Right. He is not a a big the Grinch. The Grinch. That's a big one. Exactly. A lot. The Grinch AI is a big problem, and that yeah. that thought experiment is terrible. If right. the Grinch was an AI, if the Grinch what would happen? Right. If and the that, Grinch was an AI, I mean, you and I have actually, you and I have talked over many late nights about yeah. this. However, we never landed so actually, on a, in, we never landed yeah. on an ending to that. Right. The Grinch. Well, uh, I will hypothesis. say, actually, the Grinch AI. If the Grinch was an AI, he would use keyframing. <laughs> <laughs> I find that hard to believe. I, I know that. it sounds funny. It sounds funny, but I actually I was thinking a lot about it before the show. And if <laughs> he would use Cube Framing, and he might use this system too. Well, you know why he would if use, he use an AI. If he's not an AI, he's not using Cube Framing. I think the only reason that he might use Cube Framing so much is because he wraps so many presents in cubes with bows on top. He uses those to surprise the tenants of Whoville and he sneaks under their tree and he brings them yeah, I mean, a I, nice present. Yeah, I, again, I, there's a little bit of pushback. I think it's an interesting characterization of the Grinch. The Grinch, you know, that is at the end of the story and so I guess 
you know, we are living in a world where the story has ended. It's post Grinch. Uh, and we're in the post Grinch film or story world, so that means the Grinch is happy now and he's nice now. But for the majority of the film, the Grinch, the character that we know of as the Grinch, he's not really wrapping presents, he's destroying them. Right. So really he's an he's antithetical to the cube framing, you know, system. But I like where I like the thought. I think I think there's some work to be done there. I think that there's a lot of academic research to be done on that question. Um, but as for the decision making system, um, you know, that's pretty simple. That's actually sort of similar to cube framing, but it's more uh, you have an, you have it kind of made up. It's more yeah. This is not how to, for example, how to conceptualize an idea. That's cube framing. Right. How to uh, jack off, that is through AI. Yeah. How to stop jacking off, that's through hy uh, hypno jack lock. Yeah. These things we know, but there's a different thing. The actual code, for example, you and I like to get together really late at night and talk yeah. about how DNA in a human being can also so many times be like code in a computer. Right. And the code in the computer kind of drives the blood cells. Those are like cars through the right. veins. So I would say, actually, that's a really good example because I would say DNA, you know, DNA doesn't, isn't just there to perform the task of, you know, partaking in this thing that we call, you know, biological evolution where, you know, an advanced system made up of something with DNA, you know, over time in aggregate way changes and performs sort of these overarching, very complex, nuanced uh, evolutionary, let's say, backflips, acrobatics. DNA is also in your body to perform daily tasks that are very simple. And so I would say for cube framing, that's more like, if we're using this analogy for the DNA, cube framing is more like this big overarching, you know, thousand year DNA tasks. That's what cube framing is for. It's for big picture stuff. What this is for is more for, do I need to brush my teeth this morning? Do I need to do my laundry? You know, yeah. Do I need to do a backflip? You know. Exactly. So it's like it's kind of for. yes or no, and that's so it's, it, that brings up a, the the equation that I yeah. put up on screen. Right. Yes. Yeah, so Would you explain that? Yes, yeah, so I'll explain that. So it basically it's very simple. It's actually um, it's the solution quotient equals four x, so four times the 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 problem variable divided by time. So all it is, all that you're doing is you're they're looking for the solution quotient. That's that's the answer, right? The solution quotient would be, do I brush my teeth tonight or do I brush it in the morning? Because we right. should probably only be brushing once a day. And then I say four, t so I'd say four X, the problem. The problem would be, the solution question is what I should do. Right. The problem is that problem. So you multiply that problem by four. So you picture it four times. And then what you do is divide it by time. So if the on the span <laughs> on this it's a day so we would do four different four different decisions whether or not to brush my teeth in the morning or at night divided by one day and so you could cancel out actually <laughs> Yeah, hey, you must yeah. forgive me. That is yeah. a bit confusing. It's a bit confusing. It's a bit and overwhelming. It's kind of funny. You must admit. And we like to laugh, but, it, but it's it's in this example. So in, that, in that, yeah. So let's yeah. see if you can work through the problem. Let's see if you could. Let's see because yeah. this has an answer to it. Okay, so we're looking at uh, four so, so PV. The, just to frame the question, you have is, to hide, should I brush my teeth in the morning today okay. or at night? Okay. Which one should I do? Because we should only be brushing once a day. Correct. That's the the question. I've. Yeah, and and so we start with four PU PV. Yeah, um, and you're gonna have to you know be 
be a bit charitable with me here. Yeah, so PV is just the problem variable. So that is the That's problem. That's right, yeah. So problem variable is the tooth uh, thing. And four, yeah. uh, four is four. And so what, what we can, we have to fill in is SQT. Right. And so what I would say is that your S, remind me of S. Uh, S is it, S is solution quotient, so SQ is solution quotient. All right. Um, so the, the solution quotient is uh, it is the it, it is it is the the decision. So it's the two things. It's is it night or is it morning? Oh, right. Right. Okay. So put D. So it's kind of the interplay between the decisions, whereas the you know PV is more, you know. Okay. Well, how's this look? Yeah. So yeah. So right here we're looking. So you said it should be in the morning. Your brush in the morning, right? That's what that says, right? Well, you, you, you frankly, you have to tell me. Yeah, you have so to you, interpret these well, results because they're kind of come above up with my head. More. It looks like I mean, you're 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 all the way to the end. All you gotta do is solve for that Q. Just carry that Q over, and that would be morning. Oh. So that's incorrect. Oh. So you did it wrong. So it is actually at night. Okay. So if just for that particular It's a fascinating problem. it is a really fascinating method yeah. through which to uh, can, yeah. accumulate problems. It's hard it's hard it's hard to don't beat yourself up for not understanding. It took me a long time to really devise that. So it's it's difficult. It's not easy. You've spent a lot of time focusing on problems, right? Yes. And how to fix problems, how to develop systems about fixing problems. But what do you do to ease your mind? Can you do that? And how do you do that? And if your mind is uneasable, what do you do with the mind? Um, well, I do have my hobbies. You know, I, I'm an outdoors person. I'm an outdoor hunter. Um, and I do a lot of different, um, you know, outdoor tasks. And it's actually funny, you know, a lot of times when I go on podcasts or I go on, you know, shows like this, most of what we talk about is the outdoor stuff. It is the rock climbing stuff. It is the hill climbing stuff. Um, because that is really my, my physical fitness systems and stuff like that, because that is really what I'm more known. It's for. impressive. Yeah. And it's, it's impressive. worth noting and it's worth asking about. But so like, um, I guess recently, you know, it kind of changes depending on the year, but recently we just did it and we did the Gorkums. Uh, oh wow. The yeah. Gorkums. Yeah. So the Gorkums are an underwater, you know, it's an underwater mountain range, mm -hmm. uh, running through the middle of the Atlantic ocean. Uh, right. It's at the K2 of the underwater. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's the K2 and some, some spots it goes up to a K4 actually. No so kidding. It's pretty pretty impressive. But so we did the Gorkum. So we, what you do is you go to the bottom of that um that ridge and you you get to the bottom, right? Right at the bottom of the ridge and you weigh yourself down. So it's just a scuba involved. You use what kind of tools do you use to keep yourself on the bottom? We use of the dumbbells. Ocean? We just use <laughs> old fashioned dumbbells. <laughs> no, like actually what I use is the Bowflex, the dumbbell where you can change the weight and you click on the sides. You bring those down with you purely for the weight factor. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. That's to keep me sunk. And how Otherwise do you attach those to your person? I just with rope. Around your waist, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> yeah, well, it's my swim trunks. You know the little spingles on the swim trunks? I just tie those. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me you sorry, have you, sorry. you're telling me you have uh, I'm sorry belt loops on your swim trunk. No, no, the little the the ties on a swim trunk. 
the two ties. Oh, like shoelaces. Well, okay, no wonder. Yeah, sorry, yeah, I, was, I didn't mean to laugh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I tie Bowflex dumbbells so that I go to 55 pounds. I go to the top weight, and I go down there. And what we do is we use a tube, so we don't have scuba tanks. This is really deep. Okay, we're going in a trowler, a fishing trowler. Wow, trowler. What is? That I know. And explain for the layman what a trowler. Trowler is. is a type of vessel, and it's for use for fishing. The one that we go on is a tra fishing trowler. So, we take that out to the middle of the Atlantic, right? We go, we do make a stop in Bermuda. We do some fishing in Bermuda. We hang out in Bermuda. I have a timeshare there. And then we get on the trowler. We go over to the Gorkums, which is about a four-day trip. And uh, we're blasting those motors. We use electric solar-powered motors on those. And we blast to the Gorkums. We we have tubes, right? So one of the what things you, that we've... Look, how many tubes do you have? You know, so everyone has one tube. It, it's you and I met about tubes. That's right. kind of how well, we met. So. You would love these. You should actually come with us next time we go. Um, it's really scared. dangerous. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. I'm but, too scared. But would you... So, Tell me about the tubes because, you know, so I'm this is tube, actually really cool. So tube the nut. tubes, most people, when they do the Gorkums, they're just doing a traditional scuba tank and they're actually not even weighing themselves down. What they're doing is they're getting flippers and they're getting scuba gear and they're going all the way down to the Gorkums at the base of the ridge and they're just pushing their body down the whole time with their flips. So they're upside down. Oh, so they're climbing They're up. generating velocity. And so actually, yes, downward. So a lot of the, one of the things... It's phenomenal. One of the things that that actually detracts from when you do that is you are using your buoyancy to get up the mountain. Because if you visualize the mountains on the seafloor, right. so the higher you go up the mountain, it's like falling in reverse. It's like gravity on Earth. Exactly. So it's like they're climbing it upside down. So it's kind of, I think, cheating. So that's why we devised the method with the Bowflex dumbbells. And we go all the way to the bottom of the Gorkum Ridge, right? Uh -oh. Way down. And we have to climb that mountain. But that here's the thing. We can't, we don't, okay, when you do <laughs> it, me. when you do it the other way, you do it in about six hours. No kidding. Yes. And so you can have a tank that lasts six hours. Well, you get much longer than that. It's actually very difficult to have enough oxygen. So we yeah, put oxygen tanks on the trowel. And I was curious about this. What was the lowest your blood pressure was during that trek? You know, I think we stopped measuring it on this last trip, but the trip before <laughs> we were doing 10,000 10, over 89, I think was what we did. So It's very high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 10,000. But well, I suppose, I mean, that sounds so absurd, but I suppose it makes sense because yeah. you're getting. Well, if you're down there, it doesn't matter. You can have. There's a lot of pressure on one's body. Yeah. And that would increase the blood pressure. And we take pills and stuff. We take Xanax and stuff. So. <laughs> it actually doesn't have a lot to do with that. But so anyway, the tank, what I was getting at was we have the oxygen tanks on the travel and we have the tubes going down to the ridge and we're weighed down and we're. It's taking us 60 hours. So it takes us wow. a couple days. But we have unlimited air because we're just sucking air from the top of the boat. There's not even a tank on the boat. It's just air from the air. So we're just breathing. It's like a snorkel. <laughs> and it's 10 miles the, under, uh, under actually, water. So that's the, a long tube. We actually have one master tube with tubes coming off. So we have to stick together. It's like the movie where they're on the, in space and they're... Yeah, anyway. It is. But it is a lot like it's that. Like, it's, it's, it's like being in outer space when you're down there. It's one of the interesting things about being down there. Is a lot of the, we brought in, like we brought um, astronauts with us who were in the international spaces. We had um, no kidding. We had Bob Johnson down there. And no he, kidding. Yeah. How about Bang Thompson? <laughs> Thompson. Sorry. Yeah, Bang yeah. Thompson. Bang Thompson um, was with us once too. That's incredible. Yeah. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned him. Yeah. yeah. He brought the cube back. Yeah. And the cube is huge <laughs> for AI and all that stuff. Yeah. It, it's incredible that you went down there so much and so long and you dove to depths that most humans have never dream of, yeah. but once you got back there was a different um 
situation. You maybe can I say this? Can I say this? You may have used your experience down under, down in the trench, to create one of the most beloved. I don't want to even call it a book. I want to call it more than a book. I want. I don't want to call it art because I disrespect art. I don't think art is real or valid. It is wow. an object. Okay. And you know that about me, but it's it's. You created a great object with text on it. What is yeah. it? Um, so this was a book I wrote, a children's book called The Space Rock Who Loved. <clears throat> and it was a way for me to kind of get some ideas out. You know, I, we talk about the kind of the impacts we make on the world. And we talk about some of the impacts that I've made in science, I've made in research and you know, everything else. Um, some of my studies and some of my, the books that I've written. And I thought, you know, all of that's great, all of that's fine, and, you know, in academia, you know, I'm beloved, and I have multiple prizes from all sorts of different, you know, institutions, and I have honorary degrees from probably, you know, at least a dozen, uh, you know, Ivy League universities. Um, but what I wanted to do is kind of make a difference for the children, because yeah. I feel like, you know, the children are something that we need to focus on, and children are great, and, you know, I have a son now. And he's eight years old. So. And I want to ask you about that later. I'm okay. very interested in that because he came out of nowhere. Yeah. He's how old is he right he's now? He's eight now. Yeah. And I didn't even so. hear about him until like about two months ago. So that's kind of crazy so, to so me. He's growing up really fast. I know. Yeah. A little very fast. I'm super yeah. excited about it. Yeah. Let's go back but, but so the to book, the subject at hand so real quick. Right. <clears throat> so I was spending a lot of time with my son and, and, you know, watching him and his friends play and just getting into the mind of a child, remembering what it was like to be a child. And so I did, I wrote the book and it's, um, it's about a space rock, um, who uses love to travel faster than the speed of light so that he can launch himself into a star. And then he disintegrates into space dust. But then at the end of the book, I don't want to any, I'll give the spoilers. Spoiler alert. If you do want to read the book, pause it now and skip. Uh, but so he, 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 he launches himself into a star and disintegrates. But then he quickly reconfigures his atomic structure to become a physically fit 40-year-old human male for several seconds. And then he combusts out of existence and annihilates himself and doesn't exist. And he turns into a cloud of pure love gas. And he's pure love and he, he radiates the whole universe to this day. And this is supposed to be, you know, this is 100 billion years ago. So this is, you know, he's all around us now. So the story is, yes. just, is about rocks and love and, you know. <laughs> no, I never get tired of it. In fact, as you, I, I, I love that book. Yeah. I'm really happy. Well, I'm happy. Thank you. I'm, no, what I do, I, as you know, I, I don't have, I'm not going to bring a kid into the world because yeah. of, you know, the Martian climate. I only want to live on Mars. Yeah. And so I don't want to bring a child into the Mars world where they, it's not unsustainable. Yeah. So maybe it might be the future generation. I can't help it. Mm -hmm. But what I've been doing is recording myself reading your book on tape. And I can't wait for someone to find it. Because I, I mean, I'll be alone. I'll die alone or whatever. But the tapes will be there of me reading your book. And You're, they, and okay. potentially, you know, someone that can maybe even th consider themselves to be my daughter, mm. son, or nephew, or something like that. On Mars, hopefully. But I don't know if on Mars they'll find it. So, you know, I think it's it's like interesting you say that. It's like it kind of brings to the question of like, what is your child? Like, what is a child? Mm -hmm. You know, and like, what? Who is? You know, my son is my son. But you know, are there other types of sons? Are there other types of daughters? And I think like, 
you know, for you and like the thing you're doing here with this podcast, which is really awesome. And, you know, so, so, so life changing, yeah. uh, you know, this is forever. People are going to be able to watch this for generations. And I think you're going to have a lot of sort of children as it were, you know, um, watching this for hundreds of thousands of years. And so I think that's, it's interesting. You know, what is a child? Is it a child can be many different a things. A child is sometimes I'm your, people I'm your think, child. Exactly. And I'm your child. Yes. And because seeds branch out and they become big men yes right i was once a seed from you exactly and you were once a seed from me and that's and now we've both seeded each other that's right out of the book that's incredible right out of the book i want to change i want to change pace real quick Sure. you recently recently you were in um portugal yeah and you actually spent a long time there and you were communicating with a lot of um you of people MIT folk who uh, what, what I was surprised with is that um, well I'll cut to the chase yeah Manuel Castello he's in prison yeah he's in jail more more specifically he's in jail and you had a large hand in doing yeah. that would you go into that yeah so it's actually not something I've talked about publicly yet but yes um, Castello you know what he did. To, you know, we'll put it this way. Like, okay. What Manuel Costello did became international news overnight. And so he's, you know, everyone knows, everyone knows about Manuel Costello now. But for me and what I do, I've been watching him and what he's been doing for years. And so, you know, I don't want to play like I'm some sort of hero for you know, finally sort of being the domino that fell. And let's just say, let's just put it this way. There's a lot of really fantastic people in Portugal and a lot of really great people in the Portuguese government who had a huge role in this, who did way more than what I did. But I will, I will admit that, yeah, I did. Ha I was probably the primary um, player here that started the domino effect. And, you know, I will say this. If you were in my position and you saw what Manuel Castello had been doing for the decades that he had been doing it, you would have done the same thing, and any rational person would have. So, the, you know, <clears throat> this whole thing about being a hero, which is some people have sort of said about me, is it's I, I feel like it's unfair to real heroes. You know, I, I was fed up watching Manuel do his tricks, and so he needed to be arrested, and so I saw an opportunity to finally get the ear of you know, the prime minister's assistant, they call it the the prime minister's assistant in Portugal, um, and you know we had a connection open up, and we were able to finally make the arrest and finally get him for what he's done. And so that's that's pretty much the story there, and um, and it's huge news now. So I've been getting a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails from friends. We're like, hey man, I haven't heard you know I haven't heard from you in twenty years. I heard the thing you got Costello locked up, and it's like yeah 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 okay. But it's and really it's just it's a big sigh of relief, and I think really really the um, you know the praise goes out all goes out to you know the good folks in the portuguese government and the portuguese officials um and the people of portugal they really ban they've been banding together through this and it's been really awesome to actually watch them um you know kind of bounce back from this just decades-long tragedy that manuel just you know brought upon them so manuel castello passed away just two days ago as you know he was in his cell and he died completely nude and all he had was a laundry hamper the hampers they let me put it this way for the viewer the hampers that they give out in portuguese jail because of 
you know, they want to prevent this kind of thing. They're actually, they're made of uh, biodegradable, very thin, translucent. You can barely call it string. It's almost like a web. Mm. And they give out hampers of those to every prisoner. And somehow he used his to, you know, die. Yeah, so... Though he did not commit suicide, he used it to die. Right, yeah. So it's tough because, you know, the role that I played in, in, in getting Manuel finally locked up has made me into sort of a celebrity in Portugal and also in the United States media too. And I just really don't, you know, for me, seeing the justice system in Portugal finally enact, you know, a verdict to Costello, that's what I was in the, in the whole situation in the game to do. And now that that's happened and, you know, Costello has passed away. I, I just feel as though I I don't have any part in this. And I would rather not, you know, comment on that. And I think it's up to, you know, it's up to the public and, you know, the investigatory committee that they put together um, in the Portuguese parliament to look into the death, um, to see what the conclusions they come up with are. And, you know, I'll be I'll be watching and waiting. But as as for now, I think... And the main thing for me was just to see the verdict um, and see justice be served, and 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 that was really that's really what I was concerned with. And the death is, you know, it is interesting though. So. You have to forgive me, but that is a bit of a political answer. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this: There was, as you know, the uh, sketch comedy show in Portugal. It's basically the Saturday Night Live of Portugal. Yeah. They made. Or kind of a show of this they uh exactly yeah they, they they made a big show of this and they kind of drew you out and they they kind of made a caricature of you yeah and they drew a certain conclusion about this whole mess that has kind of been the i don't want to call it conspiracy theory but it is mm-hmm. the belief and um you how did you deal with that? How did at least tell me this? You don't have to tell me anything about how it affected you or anything, but I, I'm just curious, and I think the viewers might be as well. You know, when you first saw it on uh, PNL, I didn't watch it, so you know, I've I've heard about I've heard about it. Um, will I watch it? Maybe. Um, you know, right now I'm just been focused on other things, and like I said, I'm just you know I'm interested in the verdict being served and. I, I, to be honest, I didn't watch it. I didn't feel as the need to watch it. And, you know, the, some of the characterization of me in the Portuguese media, it's, it's, it's a double-sided, it's a double-sided sword, as they say. And yeah. so it's, it's hard to kind of pinpoint the public, um, you know, the pu- sword with two reaction. sides. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's which double, is coincidentally on the sharp. Portuguese flag as well. Right. How about this? So. I've grilled you. This is as much as I can ever grill a friend. That is purely personal. I hope you do not take any offense from that. It's fine. I want to move on to something much brighter. Okay. You have a son. We mentioned him earlier. I want to talk about him now. So I love my son, my son Tanner. Um, He just turned eight last month, about a month from today. Wow. Last month. And his name's Tanner, and Tanner teaches me a lot about life. Um. One of the great things about Tanner that I've 
been able to do is relive a lot of my own childhood memories and see the world through the eyes of a child. And Tanner's my world. I love Tanner. And, um, you know, I, I love Tanner. I think, I think really, you know, the big, a big thing, uh, you know, a big reason why I wrote the book was because Tanner and a big reason why I climbed the Gorkums was because Tanner and he just says, daddy, go climb the Gorkums more. He told you that. Yeah. Inspiration can come, inspiration can come in many forms. And I think like, you know, this is one of the reasons why I really like your show because I think our show, because I think, you know, the, the mind of a child is something that true. If you look through history and you look through invent famous inventors, scientists, uh, writers, artists, they all retain something, uh, in their in their mind that's like a child so they 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 retain this childlike wonder and this childlike interest in the world around them that keeps them um it keeps them sort of innovating and i think that's something that i strive to do and i think the reason the show is so great is because it 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 exudes that childlike curiosity and um it's just one of the things i really appreciate about appreciate appreciate about you and about the show and so i love it and tanner loves the show tanner watches it he's watching right now so just hello tanner just give a shout I, out to tanner. I would love to say hello to tanner i only met him recently and i had is this incredible that you had the son and somehow i didn't know about it until yeah. two months ago until he was well, eight years old my family's very so, private and i understand that and that's okay tanner's mother totally really okay. was behind that so um and and at this point, sometimes I have uh, viewers call in. Are you interested in okay. that? Does that sound? Uh, that sounds great to me. We can talk about some of that. You're a wealth of information. It is a travesty for just me to have access to you. I would yeah. love to open it up to the viewers. What do you think about that? I, I think that's a fantastic idea. I'd All right. Like I'm going to turn the camera on you. Okay. I'm going to turn and... Join into the Collins, <coughs> the Collins section. So, ah, there's a uh, Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that was a picture at his eighth birthday. We, I took that picture last month. That's Tanner. He looks a lot like his mother. Really. Where'd you meet her? Uh, we met it. We met on a hill. <clears throat> we met on a hill. Um, I don't think I can say more than that legally. Okay, but that's we met fine. on a hill, so it's fun. I didn't want to get into any more hard stuff, you right. know, as you and I have called it. So I mean, you know. There's a chance for either us. We, either we get a call or we don't, I guess, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's okay if we don't. And uh, I think that um, given the amount of time I gave my viewers here, or our viewers, which was about 10 seconds. Let's um, just, let's, you know. I think it might I, be I a nice time to ride things off. I think so. And that's why I'm going to tell you, uh, thank you for coming. It has been an honor. You have done so much in my academic mind, expanding my brain and letting me learn what's next. So 
without further ado, um, thank you, Sam. thank you, thank you, Sam, and uh, had a really great time.